Hello and welcome to the Super 70 Podcast, episode 14, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, 1956. Super 70 is a podcast meant to play along with the film we were discussing. You don't have to though, and you can go on listening without watching anything. I would, however, recommend that you watch the film we are discussing before listening to the Super 70 Podcast. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and my website at www.thatdylandavis.com. I'm Dylan Davis. Universal issued a DVD in the UK that has a colorized version of the film. I ask that you respect the intent of the director and not use that version as it changes the lighting and the tone of the film to a nature that was never intended. That version is also five minutes longer, and after one hour, the podcast will not sync correctly. I will be using the one-hour, 20-minute version found on Vudu and available for $9.99. Due to the several stop and start times on the various DVD releases, I will start the film on the title card as it appears. If you press play on your version of the film on the title card now, this podcast should sync with the rest of the film at about 14 seconds. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Orson Welles. The story to appear before you now was never intended to be told. It was to be stifled, quickly. Nothing more than a rumor you heard in the gas stations or waiting rooms across the country. But it did get out, this outlandish tale. And it will horrify you. For when you are faced with the tale of Dr. Miles Bennell, you can do nothing but admit the terrifying truth about the invasion of the body snatchers. Jack Finney wrote The Invasion of the Body Snatchers in 1955 and it was published that year in Collier's Magazine. Universal producer Walter Wanger read it and recommended it to Don Siegel who then hired Daniel Manwaring to write the screenplay using Finney's book. Notice Sam Peckinpah's name in the credits. Peckinpah later claimed that he rewrote the script during filming but this has never been supported by any archival evidence other than a week for $250. Later in his life, Peckinpah was forced by legal action to stop telling people this story. Don Siegel is just one of these Hollywood workhorses that just turns out reliable product. He did tons of TV, lots of genre stuff, and Invasion of the Body Snatchers was seen as a B-movie horror thriller at the time. It was a really popular movie, though, and it played for a long time, and it led to other deals that eventually led Siegel to a string of hits. Madigan, 1968, Coogan's Bluff with Clint Eastwood, 1968, Two Mules for Sister Sarah with Clint in 1970, The Beguiled with Clint in 1971, Dirty Harry, getting a theme here, Charlie Varick in 1973, The Shootist in 1976, No One Likes Telephone, 1977, but I do. And the last one people remember is Escape from Alcatraz with Clint in 1979. Now I can tell you, having seen all those films, that Siegel does not have a dramatic style. In fact, I think Invasion of the Body Snatchers is about as much as a style as you're going to get out of him. He does move the camera, but it tends not to flow. There's a lot of panning left and right, and that's about it. But what effect he gives you is remarkable. We begin with Dr. Miles Bennell, the doctor of a small California town called Santa Mira. Mira in Spanish, by the way, means mirror or to look, and there is a lot of reflecting going on in this movie, so that's appropriate. Miles is played by the very capable actor, Kevin McCarthy, who has an amazing cameo in the Snatchers remake in 1978, which I'll get to later. 
We begin with a framing device, which you saw in Mildred Pierce. The movie starts and ends in the hospital. In a small town where a man looks to be quite out of his mind, some would say hysterical, talks to a doctor and a policeman about his grand conspiracy. We move into the flashback, which will tell you this dramatic story and brings us up to speed. The other bookend being at the end of the film. That's why we call it a bookend. The first tip-off that something is wrong is that all these patients want to see him. Then the second tip-off is the Grimaldi boy that's going to run away from his mother and cause Miles to step on his brakes. The third is when his patients start canceling. And then we get sidetracked by Donna Winter, as well we all should. This is Jean Wiles playing Sally, Miles' nurse. Wiles has done a shit ton of TV. She has 14 credits in 1956 alone, the year that Body Snatchers came out. And she was also in the original Ocean's Eleven. Wiles is showcasing a trend from the 50s here that you'll see throughout this film and throughout the 50s, and that is the tight sweater. You'll see Donna Winter wear one later. If I were skeptical, I would say that it's to emphasize the breasts. Don Siegel was capable because he was reared in TV. He worked in TV for so long, Siegel got a taste for shooting fast, and all of his shoots were on time and under schedule. And if you look at Clint Eastwood, you can see that he inherited this. In fact, if you read the reviews for American Sniper, or even the reviews for some of his older films, Firefox, or even The Bridges of Madison County, which is dearly loved by critics, the one string that you'll see among them is this idea that he doesn't take his time. If he thinks he gets it in one take, then that's it. Done. Move on. And many think that this style came from Siegel, and maybe Siegel got away with it, but certainly Eastwood has not. 1517 to Paris is loaded with stuff that looks like it was shot in one take. It's an efficient way to film and save money to be sure, but it may not lead to the best performances or the best movie. Anyway, you can tell here that Siegel is effectively shooting fast takes, and many of these might be the first take. Watch this amazing entrance Donna Winter makes as Becky. Siegel builds up her entrance by having her show up in the next room before Sally tells her to go in to see Miles. Then she walks in and here she comes. Wow. What fucking mathematics did someone do to get that dress to stay on? How exactly is that supporting her? And if you look at the lace across her breasts, and you didn't need me to mention it, right? You saw it first. You looked right at her breasts, so the lace is working. And the lace looks kind of like these weird bubbles, like from the pods, which you'll see later. You'll see almost everything later. And later you'll see that she wears a dress with a floral print right before she turns into a pod. Miles' office seems pretty innocuous, looks pretty normal, but like everything else in the film, that's pretty deceiving. First, have you noticed how Miles knows everyone in town? Not just the Maldi boy, but watch as he goes from his office to the restaurant with Becky later. He's on a first-name basis with everyone. And remember, as a doctor who provides care, he has to be emotionally detached from these folks because he has to treat them as patients. 
and that's supposed to get us to see how things are supposed to be and that's important and we'll get to that later too in the hallway you'll hear becky say that she was just in reno and miles admits that he was there a few months ago this is a reference to the fact that in most states including california in the 1950s it was not easy to obtain a divorce in mildred pierce i believe the process took a year but you could go to the nevada where you could get married the same day and you could get divorced the same day all you needed was to have all your ducks in a row and go to a judge and he'd do it you spent more time in the car driving to nevada than you did in nevada getting the divorce this is to open the relationship up to sex which will follow in a few scenes obviously they are older and more experienced if this were a young couple that whole notion would not even be entertained Santa Mira drugs. I wonder if they have tranquilizers in there. Hollywood is full of fascinating people and Donna Winter is one. She was born Dagmar Winter in Germany, but she grew up in England and studied in South Africa before acting in the English theater, which brought her to the attention of an American agent who brought her to Hollywood. Because she is effectively German, her name is pronounced Donna, not Dana. Her husband was Gret Bautzer, who dated Joan Crawford before he married Winter. It's all interrelated, folks. Hollywood is very incestuous. Like Wiles, she worked a lot in TV. She is probably best known for this film, but she was also in Airport, the infamous 1970 TV movie. She just passed away in 2011. Lovely person. Here's the Grimaldi boy again who thinks his mother is an imposter. Remember they closed the stand because it was too much work? This is odd for a capitalist to say. We've already heard the word imposter and the boy isn't old enough to use that word, but kids are kind of like dogs, right? They're more basic in their instincts and they know something is wrong. The concerning part is when you realize it's only kids and women that we meet that knows something is wrong. The men in the film come up with every answer under the sun until they literally see a body growing on a pool table. Films are time capsules into the time that they are made. This is in a practical sense. If you look at Miles' suit or Becky's dress, you have a pretty good idea of middle class style. And let's not forget that is exactly what Siegel is prepping you for. He wants to bathe you in the middle class right now. He wants you to look at everything on the screen and think that it is normal, way normal, super normal. That way when you see something that is abnormal, then it won't just look abnormal, it'll look freakish. It'll look alien. That's why you can see a bust of Lincoln in the background. Is that a picture of the Grand Canyon? Everyone had a set of encyclopedias like that growing up. Sally is a candy striper. Wait until you get into Miles' house. It's beyond normal. It's normal for normal. But there's also something else going on. Some research on this film has discovered that there was a deliberate attempt to cut out all references to nostalgia in Body Snatchers, almost like they didn't want people remembering the good old days such as they were the 20s or the 30s it's not totally gone though and you can see miles behavior 
how he knows everyone in town personally, even the other doctor whom he is in direct competition with, and there's not a trace of jealousy there. See there, they're just sitting casually on the front long swing, casual chatting. Uncle Ira is mowing the yard. Another Pleasant Valley Sunday here in status symbol land. But they know something is wrong. Barry Keith Grant wrote that for Peter Biskin, invasion of the body snatchers is not really about the threat of communism or conformity, but rather about a nostalgia for a lost traditional community and the creation of a new one, defined by the alarmist perspective of the right. But in the end, while one might read the film as a right-wing endorsement of paranoia or a left-wing warning about capitalist mass culture, it is above all a centrist nostalgic lament for the fact that, to paraphrase Duke Ellington, things ain't what they used to be. Grant is great. Pick up his film genre book. But films are also time capsules in other ways. Films show us the hopes and the fears of society that it comes from. Given that case, what does this film tell us about America in the 1950s? What are we looking for? What does this film reflect, Santa Mira? What does it reveal? What does it copy? What does it symbolize? Science fiction films tend to produce their own ideology. What ideology is created here? What is this film afraid of? What is it trying to tell us? This film reflects a perception of social reality. And there's the obvious things going on with the pods and conformity and all of that, which we'll get to soon enough. But there are deeper issues in this film. Collective paranoia, for example. Pod people as communists is pretty blatant, sure. But the paranoia involved is finding pod people. That's where things get really hairy. That's where things get McCarthyite. For the next few scenes, we'll see a sequence of events that don't make a lot of sense, but we know these are for the plot, the breadcrumbs, and that's okay. Everyone knows this film is called Invasion of the Body Snatchers. It's that obvious. You know what you're getting into, but you are brilliantly led into it like it's a normal day. And that is... What is different about this film in particular? A lot of sci-fi boom movies just hop right into the weirdness of everything, but not Body Snatchers. It's bathed in normality. And following the psychology here, you're in a kind of investigation, kind of like the first hour of The Exorcist that threw everyone crazy because it was more of a detective story than it was a horror thriller. And that's the same here. The investigation seems rational until the Belichicks come into play. But while all of that goes on, I want you to see how Miles and Becky are taking their time. And remember what I said before, that Siegel had shot this in record time, but it doesn't look like it. It looks like they took their time crafting this. So quality is high. It's misleading. This looks like most A movies at the time. It's like a John Carpenter film. You'd swear it's a $40 million picture. And you're shocked when you find out that it costs only three. What I'm getting to is the TV experience 
that I mentioned before that comes in handy here. Body Snatchers was filmed in 19 days. It might have been 24 with inserts. There was no second unit, so that's lightning fast. Even at six days a week, they were still three days over schedule, mostly due to night shots that Siegel needed. But this frenetic pace meant that they were shooting so fast that there was very little time between scenes to rehearse. You had to get it and go, just like TV. Donna Winter said the burden of acting was placed almost entirely on the actors. There was very little time to discuss scenes or film structure. And that's probably due to what Barry Keith Grant has written about this film, that Siegel's films are heightened by the talent of his collaborators. And if you look at his most successful films, his Clint Eastwood films, they are that good because he was working with top-notch talent. But if you gave Siegel crap actors, then hold your noses. You're going to get crap content. I'm not so sure about that, but it's a decent theory. Here, Miles meets the town psychiatrist. He meets the strong. He already knows him. He's familiar with what's going on, and he says he thinks it's just people worrying about what's going on. And that's relevant. What is going on in 1956? Well, I'm sorry, but I really don't have time for that now. We'll have to get into that later. But for now, let's take a look at this Maison Sen. Most of the jokes in Invasion of the Body Snatchers were cut from the film in post-production. Walter Wenger thought that the humor was too distracting. It would be a much different picture for sure. One that slips through is Miles' jibe here at Bedside Manners, clearly indicating that Miles and Becky intend on having sex. It's remarkable this made it into the 50s film, but remember, this is a B picture. And the code was somewhat lax about those types of attitudes slipping into lower-end projects. Note the jukebox in this scene and the restaurant owner telling Miles that he had to let the band go because there wasn't enough business. Well, what do pod people want to go out to eat for? What would they dance to? Music is 100% emotional, so we have an impersonal mechanical jukebox, as Barry Keith Grant calls it. The machine that is responsible for giving us Elvis Presley, Johnny Cash, and the death of older, more traditional music, which really hasn't changed since the early 1930s. This is on the heels of movies like The Wild One with Marlon Brando and Rebel Without a Cause with James Dean. These were films that made a lot of parents think of their children not just as nonconformists, but as space aliens. That's how weird their children were. They were parking their cars and fucking in the back seat. The adults want to tame their children. They want them to conform. Don't listen to Elvis the Pelvis, and for God's sakes, stop procreating. It's bad for you. Miles the Good Doctor not drinking until his work is done. This shot uses back projection to make it look like the camera's in motion. It's not. It's when they turn the corner here into the Belichicks. Here we go. The car is in the studio in front of a screen that is projecting the image of Belichick waiting for you. It was too expensive to put the camera in the car for a live shot. 
Most of these shots are back projection and everyone from Hitchcock to James Cameron uses them. And this brings up some technical issues of this film that are side notes but are interesting. We'll get to them later. Kevin McCarthy, by the way, wasn't blown away by the script. If you pay attention to the words, you'll notice there's nothing in here that will win a Scrabble game. And McCarthy thought that it was a mistake. He thought that it was too bland. It would be better if we saw how people actually spoke and conveyed on screen. However, that's what clerks did and people hated it. As we come across the body here, you're going to have the most film noir moment of the, the whole picture. First, this is a fairly large room and it's going to be lit and shot like Citizen Kane. Notice the ceilings. There's going to be great depth and it's going to all be in focus. It's night. There's a body on the table. There's a single light above the pool table. And this scene is almost exactly like it's in Finney's novel. Some say that Finney wrote the novel with the idea that he would do a screenplay or that one would eventually be made from it. So it was anticipated and it did pay off. The staging here has not left the investigation stage. In fact, it's increased. This looks like Sam Spade called to the scene of a crime or Philip Marlowe presented with a series of facts that he simply can't explain. After all, what does Miles want to do right off the bat? He wants to take fingerprints, like he's going to the police. So we're still bathed in a world of the normal, but not for long. When Miles takes the fingerprints, you'll notice there are none. The fingerprints are blank. Miles mentions it's just like a fetus. And we know this in modern day, it's just not the case. Don't let that distract you. They didn't know anything about fetuses in the 1950s. Abortion wasn't legal for another 20 years. I bring this up because the poster for Invasion of the Body Snatchers had the handprint on it with Miles and Becky running away from it. Though most ink pads are black, especially for handprints, and while we can't see this one because this is a black and white movie, the print used for the poster was red. So it looked like Miles and Becky were running from this red handprint. Like they were scared of it. A red scare. The normality that you see here, Belichick's sweater, the glass everywhere, it's mixed with the upper middle class again, the pool table and the room right inside the door of Belichick's house. This is a nice place, an expensive place. Belichick has been participating in what some would see as the reward structure in post-war America. If you play by the rules and you work hard, then you're rewarded by becoming affluent. This creates conformity because everyone wants to be affluent. Everyone wants a pool table. And the criticism is this conformism replaced individuality as the principal ingredient to success. You didn't have to do anything special to make it in America. In fact, the more you didn't look special, the better off you were. Farms were bulldozed so that neighborhoods full of ranch houses like this could be built. The shot switched here to behind the bar and you'll see a number of posters on the wall behind the pool table. One says shot blank or white cat which will have no meaning but then you see a poster for mirror noir 
black mirror, which reminds us that doubles are going on, like the town's name, Santa Mira, to look. And on the wall to the left, you'll see some masks on the wall because apparently everything that you'll see, you'll see for sure, but something else will be hidden behind it, even if you use a mirror. You'll also see a poster that says Femme Fatale on the right, or the Fatal Female. This is tipping us off that Becky is going to turn. So what is going on in 1956? Well, in February, Guy Burgess and Donna McLean, who were former counterintelligence agents in MI6, surfaced in the Soviet Union after being missing for five years. Oklahoma was released in 70mm. Carousel was released in Cinemascope 55. Nikita Khrushchev delivers his secret speech attacking the cult of personality and the crimes of Joseph Stalin. In July, the first U-2 spy plane flight over the Soviet Union is complete. Egypt nationalizes the Suez Canal, prompting an international crisis involving Britain, Israel, Soviet Union, and the United States. In October, Hungary attempts to leave the Warsaw Pact and revolution breaks out against the government. The Soviet Red Army invades to stop the coup and retain communist rule. The UK, France, Israel invade Egypt to force the Suez Canal open. In November, Dwight Eisenhower is elected for a second term over Adlai Stevenson, even though foreign policy in the United States has been bipartisan for the last 10 years and will be bipartisan for the next 10. The Wizard of Oz is the first movie to be broadcast on network television uncut. In December, Fidel Castro and Che Guevara land in Cuba to begin the revolution. But more important than this is what has happened before 1956. Here is the light play as Miles is trying to convince Becky to sleep with him. During this, he calls her a forward wench, quite insulting today, and they both quote King Lear to suit their needs. Becky describing him as mad because he's coal trailing her so much. We're so caught in the conversation we almost missed Jack dodging the basement question. Obviously, he's putting pods down there. Can it be any mistake that the same shot with the pod person waking up has a clock on the wall? I guess time's up. He's done. Stick a fork in him. I'm not so sure, but it seems so crazy that we're placing such an emphasis on this film now. When it came out, it was on a double bill with the Atomic Man and hardly anyone noticed it, but it gained a quick following. Most newspapers did not even give it a review. Those who did notice it seemed to understand what it was getting at. The film was a success. It cost 400000 to make and it brought in $1.2 million. In 1994, it was voted into the U.S. National Film Registry at the Library of Congress. Some people have noticed that it was the first movie to point out the banality of evil, to use a phrase that Hannah Arendt invented not too much later than this. Now I'm going to go off the deep end here, and I hope I finish before we get too far. Bear with me, and we'll get back to the scene-by-scene after I kind of lay out this groundwork here. The background is just so important. 
when you start looking at film as art and film as literature and you start looking through films and seeing these subtexts there that may or may not be intentional I had seen Invasion of the Body Snatchers before film school and I didn't think anything of it I had also seen The Blob Godzilla there are a ton of 1950s low-grade sci-fi that on the surface it's just another B-movie made very quickly to churn out a few hundred thousand and move on. But like The Blob and like Godzilla, this film has endured, and it has grown to have a life of its own. And you may think, Godzilla, really? But this film has been remade twice, and every time it's been made, it's made a fortune. People see things in this film that are relevant, whether they agree with it or not, or even if they understand it or not. And by the way, it's okay to not understand it. It's okay to shake your head and say, I just don't get it. I do the same thing to films. I did it to the Meg last month. So let's say that it's 1956, and let's say that you're a war veteran because almost a quarter of everyone is by this time. Let's say that you were 40 years old in 1956. That means that you were born in 1916. If you were like most people in America, you grew up lower middle class. I mean, poor. Even in 1926. But the time you were 10, you became aware that you were poor. When you were 15, the bottom fell out of everything. The great economic catastrophe, the Great Depression started. So, by the time you were 20 in 1936, you weren't too sure if you were going to survive. Not just poor. If you were like a quarter of America, you were destitute. You had nothing. Not a pot to piss in, so to speak. And in this time, people were so desperate, they would have done anything to survive. They were so desperate, they weren't sure if democracy worked anymore. They start voting for people who say, if you vote for me, I'll take money for the rich and I'll give it to the poor. And if you're most of the population, that seemed like a fine idea since people were starving to death. And you have the rise of these political movements. They've been around for a while, socialism, communism. They've been here for decades. But now people listen. In America, I mean, people start listening to them. They might have an answer. So you start going to meetings. You start talking about how best to vote or who to vote for or who can do the best work that needs to be done. Raise income tax to 90% for the top bracket, for instance protect workers and their jobs, unionize every type of occupation in the United States, and most of all, stay out of that fucking war. The one that's coming. This does not seem like a conspiracy in 1937 and 1938. It seems like common sense. And if you see what's going on in Europe, you see the fascism. You see Mussolini and Franco and Hitler, and you're like, fuck that. Fuck that noise. No thank you. And if you're interested before, you're dead on now. Yeah, fuck it. Socialize our democracy. It might be the only way. No one wants to end up being ruled by reactionaries. Jesus. And you might have a job, but it's such a low-paying job that you can't afford shit. You may have a pot to piss in by now, but you don't have anything else. Then 1939 comes. The world is at war. And then the war came to America. And the war changed everything. You left home. You killed people for a living for four years. You saw your best friends die in battle 
and you yourself did horrible things to women and children. You killed civilians, maybe not purposefully, maybe you did it from 5,000 feet, maybe the artillery shell you fired landed on a school, maybe you were too quick with a rifle and shot a woman in the back while clearing Nazis out of her house. And then you see the camps. And your life changes again. And you go home. And when you get home, everything has changed again. Your girl, well, she left you because you were gone so long. Or maybe she's still there, but she's different. She doesn't need you anymore. She's had a job while you were gone. Technically, that was your job she took. And everything's different because the king is dead. That guy who's been running the country for 12 years, he's gone. And now you hear, fuck. Those camps you saw, they're everywhere. Not here, not Germany anymore. No, they're in Russia. And that's where they put people like you. Hard-working people who just want to work and survive. But through all of this, you persevere. You work hard. You work real damn hard. You and your wife, you work things out. Or you find another girl and you settle down. And with a new job, she quits. And, and then you can actually afford to buy a house. Then you can have two kids. Just think of that. You can afford kids. And everything's going to be fine. Until a series of events that has nothing to do with you. It fucks everything up. And now we're going to put your life on hold because I'm trying very hard not to ramble on this podcast and keep it aligned with scenes. You should be about 32 minutes and 33 seconds now. Miles seems to save Becky from the pod he sees in the basement, but inexplicably he leaves her father there. But when he goes back to the Belichick's with the psychiatrist, Dr. Kaufman, the body that woke up is gone. Now we have moved from disturbing to threatening. Now we know copies are being made and are walking around, but we don't know why. And like everything in horror movies, the why is usually more menacing than the what. And while they're theorizing about what's going on here, let's get back to the background. Your life after the Second World War and your concerns after you've won this enormous victory I was talking about how everything after the war was better because the war was over so America was doing fine but everything else in the world seems to be coming apart first the commies win the Chinese Civil War and they start camps too those ones you saw in the war and then the communists invade South Korea and your brother fought in the war too he got called up in the draft and he has to go to Korea and this is totally unfair he fought the Japanese in Tarawa and Iwo Jima. Now he's in South Korea. Fuck that. And just when that looks like it's turned around, the Chinese jump in the fight. And it's any week now, someone's going to drop an A-bomb. And we might be in a real hot war real fucking quick. And the guy running the war, he's talking about dropping a lot of them and invading China and fucking up a lot of people, killing millions of people. And luckily, the president, he fired him. But the war is still going on and has to be turned around, which it will and the people will sigh a big collective relief. But no sooner is that done than we find out that the fucking Russians, the commies, they've got a bomb too. And not only do they have one, they got it from us. They spied on us, and they fucking got it. And now shit's real. Now the two mightiest powers on Earth, they're about to fuck each other up, and you're scared. You're so scared, and there's nothing you can do. 
You can't fight your way out of this one. Not against Nabom. And you can't talk your way out because commies don't work like that. They don't think like the rest of the world. They only solve problems with bullets. So, what do you do? Well, a lot of people, they freak the fuck out. That's what they do. Since they, they can't do anything about the world situation, they stop looking overseas and they start looking at home. And then they see you, since you vote Democrat and you don't go to church, and because you might even be Jewish, and because you're a member of a union, because they met a guy who knew a guy who saw you at a house party once, 20 years ago at a meeting, and at that meeting a communist spoke, and you were there. And now you, you're the threat that they can manage. You're the threat they can do something about. And now you're the enemy. Now, what this is all leading to, believe it or not, effectively speaking, is society is getting tired. Society is getting worn out. By 1954, American society has been a living hell of the worst stress that you can imagine in a Western democracy since 1929. So, for 25 years, these heavy, heavy issues were really weighing American society down. Depression. War. Hardship. More war. Paranoia, fear. This was a society that didn't give a shit about anything but slavery for 200 years. Everything was hunky-dory. And now we're facing nuclear annihilation, not just of America, but of the entire fucking planet. Everyone. How do you even begin to cope with that? How did the generation at the time cope with the growth of the urban society? Cope with the idea that the individual is in control of things, with the loss of America being, what? Insulated from the rest of the world. Uh, the unbelievability the frightening result of technology, bureaucracy. If you lived in this age, what would you want more than anything else in life? You would want for everything to just go back to the way that it was, go back to normal, as normal as fucking possible, so you don't have to worry about all this shit that's going on, all this heavy, heavy shit, lots of deep, emotional, heavy issues that have been decades in the making. And now back to our regular schedule programming. Strangely, we move from a rather frightening scenario of burned bodies and a murder mystery and now from a, a dark basement we go to a light kitchen and Yu and Yendo is strong. First, it looks right off the bat like traditional gender roles have won out since they probably had the old in and out. The woman is in the kitchen cooking for a man. Jack then asks if he and Teddy can stay a while unless Miles and Becky have something else in mind. I wonder what that could be. Becky is wearing Miles' shirt and jeans, and she looks like pictures of my grandmother in the 50s. Allied artists actually looked into merchandising campaign, using Donna Winter in this outfit with her standing at a stove with a loaf of Wonder Bread. But sadly, it never happened. Okay. Along came the 1950s, and along came B-horror movies, and B-movie science fiction films, and Film is just the right medium for this background setting. Science fiction is just the right time. It reminds me of something Stanley Kubrick said in an interview once when he was working on a script for Dr. Strangelove and it was supposed to be a true drama. But he changed the script to a comedy because he realized the entire thing was just absurd. It's just too absurd. And this film, whatever it wants to deal with, 
the idea that conformity is doing everyone in or the idea that communism is secretly infecting society or the idea that McCarthyism and paranoia is taking over everything, whatever it is, it's absurd. It's crazy, these things. It's crazy to think that communism is an internal threat to this nation. I mean, a revolutionary threat. And what I mean by that is it's absurd to think that we have to think that way. And we do. We have to fear communists to the point of murder in a Julius Caesar kind of way to fear an individual communist. It's also absurd to think that our country is so horribly normal that it does not allow for any outliers. There are these people that want to believe that. They do believe that. There are people who want to promote that. But it's such an absurd idea. It's all absurd. And that's why this is a B science fiction movie. It's why it is the way that it is. Because it's absurd. And now the Grimaldi boy wants to go home and it appears everything will be fine even after what he's seen last night. It's also important to remember the perspective of the pods. They're just doing what we've always done as humans. We invaded, we colonized, we established an empire, the new world, the West, the whole world, you could say. You could call it a kind of interstellar domino theory, right? That was the foreign policy that America promoted to contain communism. And it seems that's what the pods are doing. Planet by planet, they move on and they use and they move on. And we get this impression, despite the fact that there are no wide landscape scenes, not until the very end of this film, most of the film is shot in these claustrophobic rooms or like this, more confined and tilted, close up to something. The film is very scaled down. This has to do with its budget, of course, but because of this, the tighter shots, the lack of notable cast, the small amount of special effects shots, it makes a more normal, more real setting. It also shows the bland and empty American lifestyle. What do we do? We obsess about our health. We go to eat. We try to procreate. And that's about it. And now the bottom falls out of everything because Miles actually sees the pods for the first time. And this is a fabulous scene. Now this was shot in Super Scope. Now, just very briefly, we'll run through some technical details of the 1950s. TV scared the shit out of Hollywood in the 1950s, so the response was to give audiences something in the theater that you could not get from a TV, and obviously the one thing that people point out to the most is the size of the screen. In 1952, Cinerama Company released This Is Cinerama to introduce this idea of a wider screen. Until that point, the great majority of films released were at 4 to 3 aspect ratio, which was basically the same as TV. Cinerama was 2.65 to 1, which is the standard for what we generally call widescreen today. Then 20th Century Fox came along and introduced CinemaScope in 1953, and that was 2.66 to 1 aspect ratio. Just one off from Cinerama. So for this reason, anything that's in, you know, 235, 239, 240, generally that's called scope because, you know, it's close enough. Now, CinemaScope is effectively cheating. It uses an anamorphic 35 millimeter film to capture the image. And when you play it back, it stretches the image out using a special lens. Like it's squeezed. And when they play it back, it's unsqueezed. This was crucial because 
Theaters didn't have to buy new projectors to show scope. All they had to do was change the lenses of their cameras, and if they were technically adept enough, they could go back and forth. In 1954, Paramount Pictures introduced VistaVision, and instead of using anamorphic technology, VistaVision just rotated the frame 90 degrees and made each frame wider, so the sprockets for the projector would be on the top and the bottom of the film frame instead of on the sides like a normal 35mm print. This got you a finer grain projection print, but that was soon obsolete when finer film stocks were created not too much longer after that. But this division was crucial for developing 70mm IMAX and Omnimax later. Cinemascope 55 then came in as the next step up from Cinemascope. Then Mike Todd, the great Mike Todd, developed Todd AO, which is the most similar to the widescreen standard used for 70 millimeter today. Super Panavision 70 and Ultra Panavision 70 are both based on Todd AO. And even the Soviets developed, or rather they reverse engineered this technology. Now I bring all this up so I can tell you this. The biggest movie of 1956 wasn't Invasion of the Body Snatchers. It was Around the World in 80 Days starring David Niven. It racked in tons of Oscars and tons of money and everyone seems to have forgotten it because it's a forgettable movie. I've never seen it. But this one isn't forgettable. In fact, the Wikipedia page for Invasion of the Body Snatchers has a laundry list of pop culture references while Around the World in 80 Days does not. Everything is related to that film back to the Jules Verne novel. So this film had an impact. And we can complain about the shot composition, but it's way, way better than most films especially around the world in 80 days. So anyway, Allied Artists decided to release this film in 1955 as Superscope, which it was not shot in. It's a process applied in the printing stage. Now, Wanger objected strongly because the process means the print loses definition and is regarded even to this day as inferior to a standard 35 millimeter print. So the pods are here. The whole greenhouse reveal reminds me of this old Twilight Zone episode. And that's fitting because Siegel directed two of those episodes for Rod Serling. Miles' reaction here is kind of comical if you think about it. He's, a, he's like a death row inmate. I want to talk to the police and I want to talk to the governor. But now he's figured out on the telephone lines that they're in control of the pods. And I'm sure everyone knows telephone exchange is one of the first things taken in any revolution. It was second only to the printing press in the Bolshevik shortlist of sites to take in November Revolution 1917. It's the military-industrial complex, like Eisenhower warned us about. And this is a true rev revolution. And now, Becky and Miles, along with the Belichicks, they start their own conspiracy. A conspiracy to survive. Because pods are effectively doubles. They are people. They are aliens that look like humans. And the horror of the film is more psychological than a gross physical image. This is also true of Blade Runner where you, you can't tell a replicant apart from a human or even an alien when you find out how the facehugger plants his eggs, right? You're not sure who's infected. But the grand poobah of this type of psychological torture is John Carpenter's The Thing. Kurt Russell's character, MacRady, is just as desperate as Miles is here. He says, I know I'm human. And later on he says, trust no one, right? No one trusts anybody anymore. 
and you see the exact same thing happen here. The doubling is so disturbing that Miles can't kill Becky's pod. But he can kill his own. You ever see David Cronenberg's remake of The Fly in 1986? Seth, who's brilliantly played by Jeff Goldblum, who's in the 78 remake of this film, by the way. He says, insects don't have politics. No compassion, no compromise. And that's true of these pod people. They only react as insects do. They don't have to do extraneous things like have jobs. They don't have an ideology. So suppose the question is, if they don't have an ideology, then how can this be a metaphor for communism? Or does the lack of ideology itself, in the way it is followed or adhered to, is that like communism? Since the pods are part of a collective, that makes sense. Kind of like bees. They work together. The collective goal, the collective good, the collection mission. Obey. Marry and reproduce. Sounds like another John Carpenter film. Only that one was about capitalists. Jack Finney rejected all of this talk, by the way. He said his novel was just sci-fi, not a Cold War metaphor. But it seems like it fits. I found this part darkly funny. The pod people are giving up their jobs, but they still have a gas station attendant because even communists need gas. The other part of this is familiar. What is more familiar than a gas station? And yet it's dangerous because it's been infiltrated by a pod person. You'll see this over and over again throughout the film. The greenhouse, for example, it's familiar and it's been turned into something horrible. The trunk of this car is familiar. Miles' suit jacket, Becky's sweater. So there's this surface of normality, but underneath it is the terror. So the malignant evil here is the state of mind where there is no feeling, no free will, no moral choice. But there is also no anger, no tears, no passion, no emotion like Uncle Ira. This also means that human judgment is dead and everything becomes primal. It's very basic. Now, in the end, we know that it's a mistake to call communists this. Communists have spouses, they have children, they have families, they have cares and worries just like the rest of us. It's like that Sting song, Russians. It's such an ignorant thing to do if the Russians love their children too. But this is how we see communists, not just then, but now too. So this vision of these ideologically brainwashed people so cleansed by party policy that they can't think for themselves or show any emotion. That's how we view most North Koreans. So it's not outrageous, this correlation. And here, they're going to put a pot in with a baby to keep the baby from crying. And this is where normal becomes menacing. People would gasp in the theater when they saw this. Pods do not have individuality or an ability to choose. And nothing has expressed the inability to choose more than communism. Nikita Khrushchev, for instance, made fun of America for having too many kitchen appliances. And what is more representative in the 50s than kitchen appliances? Run for it, Miles. What's more normal than a hot dog stand? 
what's more American than a hot dog stand? What's more American than car 54? Where are you at a hot dog stand? And for the next few scenes, you'll you'll start to see a shift in sets. Everything will be more confined and we'll have more of a claustrophobic feel to it. You'll see our dynamic duo in small offices, closets, thin hallways, corridors, caves. They're going to attempt to stay out of sight of the pod people until they can find a way out of town. They're literally run for the hills. And for the rest of this film, you're going to see Kevin McCarthy run around an insane amount. And I don't know how he managed to keep up his stamina. You'll see him sprint down hallways, sprint down roads, up hills. And Donna Winter, too. So much so that it seems overdone. McCarthy said he got cramps while running around that he had to do, and I believe it. Think about how the police here, which is the conforming nature of the 50s, right? A time when crime was at its lowest in American history. Think about how there was such an overriding respect of authority in the 50s. The Andy Griffith Show, Barney Five, how conformism tied in deviancy to delinquency. And here the police are flipped. American police, they are now the enemy. They are the hunters looking for the non-conformists. They are the Gestapo now. Think about how fucked up that is to see that in a Hollywood movie in the 1950s. Conformity is based on the idea that there is a very clear definition of what is and what is not normal. There is an us and a them. And the more you can distinguish them, the more crushing the forces of conformity. The Dollop has a great podcast about Levittown and the riot that a white suburb had to get one Jewish family out. Now, how did the wasps know they were Jews? They decided for themselves what they were, so it really didn't matter if the offending family was Jewish or not. It's why Hitler used yellow stars. You identify the other. You do that first. And the Jews to the Nazis were the most subversive because you couldn't always tell them apart. So they were seen as conspiratorial. So to apply the other to the body snatchers, what is going on? The pods are othering. They're identifying people based on their feelings. And so far, the only good thing I see about that is this seems to be pretty much the only way to eliminate racism or war. But if we're all pods, then what's the point, right? Of course, we could all say the same thing about communism, but we know for a fact that communist countries invaded each other to enforce conformism. And here's a classic shot showing just how caged in they are in the grill right they closed in claustrophobic couldn't be any more blatant and this shows that this is a film about constraints miles ability to make sense of the world decreases as the film goes on to the point to where he literally goes mad you saw that in the beginning did he look rational to you so the physical space of this scene and the scenes after they get much smaller as a result where are the pods found cellars, basements, greenhouses, 
closets, car trunks, baby cribs. So this is a poisonous environment, just like the 50s. It was not against the law to be a communist, and yet if you were found to be one, your right to earn a living was denied. If you promoted free speech like Dalton Trumbo did, then you were hounded out of your industry. To take the Fifth Amendment for the first time, it did not mean that you were protecting your legal rights. It meant that you were admitting your guilt. And the fear of McCarthyism and HUAC and all of that made friends turn on each other, much like in Body Snatchers. Now, because we ended the previous scene with a kiss and opened with an oval, the ashtray with a lot of cigarettes, we can assume that they had sex again. Smoking is what everyone does after sex. Those who smoke, at least. Now, look at this Norman Rockwell town start to look like an idyllic nightmare. Maybe it was before and we just didn't notice it. And the people look like they're insects, like ants marching or bees or something. And this is Creston Court in Sierra Madre, California. You can find it on Google Maps. I've been there and I've walked the square and I'm sorry to report there seems to be no marker of any kind stating that this was captured as beautiful downtown Santa Maria in 1956. Very disappointing. They should get to work on that. And remember what I said about Miles knowing everyone and greeting everyone on the street by name? Well, that's over. Everyone just passes by and they don't even say anything. No hello, no how are you, and why is that? Because why bother? What's the point? And it reminds me of this lecture I heard on C-SPAN's podcast. I'm sorry, I don't remember which one, but it was a professor talking about how the birth of the suburb in the late 1940s just changed society permanently in little ways that we're still trying to get over. Like you come home and you park your car in the garage and you close the garage door and you go inside and there's no chance of you meeting your neighbor in the two times that you're leaving, coming, going from your house. None at all. Totally insulated. And that pretty much sucks. And now, with these trucks, the full extent of the pods conspiracy, and that's what this is, a conspiracy, it's fully brought to light. And again, the normal becomes disturbing. There's nothing here out of place until you see the pods, which now they feel so comfortable they can bring them out in broad daylight. They don't even try to hide it anymore and it is amazing how the reading can go both ways on conformism with this right we already talked about how communism is a conformist ideology if you don't conform here's your bullet but the brilliance of this film is that it can be read two ways obviously our society finds it easier to label things the same way corporations love it governments love it it makes everything easier you don't have to think things in, in a complicated way. So at the same time, American society was deeply conformist in the 1950s. And to an extent that, that it was not helpful to our overall growth as a nation and as a force trying to find its footing in fighting this Cold War. Uh, a lot of innocent Americans were ruined for having false beliefs. And I'm not going to call communism a benign be belief, but... I will say that an American communist still has the same rights as an American Democrat or an American Republican. And you cannot like that all you want. That's fine. But that's the truth. The Constitution does not mention political parties in the First Amendment. Busted by Belichick. The Czechoslovak 
in the doctor's office with the candlestick. So now I guess it's time to talk about the Belichicks. Now, the 1978 remake has Jeff Goldblum cast as Belichick and Veronica Cartwright from Alien cast as his wife. The amazing thing about that particular production is that it ever got made at all. It was an MGM UA movie. It has fucking Jeff Goldblum and Leonard Nimoy in it. It starts on some foreign planet or Mars or something, and it looks like these jellyfish or some weird shit come to Earth, and they wreak all this havoc in San Francisco of all places. You know, our very liberal town. It's as good as any town, I guess, but there's there was something about the normalcy of Santa Mira that made the conforming nature of the message that much more terrifying. The remake is so different. It's more gross. It's more more creepy, and there's this very organic opening like it's this jellyfish to get into the clouds and somehow that means that some type of virus or life gets into the ecosystem using plant life and it's immediately menacing and kids just start picking the pods directly off the trees and Robert Duvall shows up as a priest on a swing. It's just weird and you're not recovered from that yet and Donald Sutherland shows up as this very weird figure and he's with the Department of Health. He's an inspector in a restaurant and already you know, you know, this isn't going to be good. And this movie is called Invasion of the Fucking Body Snatchers, so it's not like you don't know what's coming. So the idea that he's in this restaurant and so immediately you're thinking, holy shit, this stuff is getting into the food supply. Kind of like the paranoia in the 50s about putting fluoride into the water. And from there it just gets weirder and weirder. And even more weird than this film and and the complete out-of-body experience that happens in the remake when... Kevin McCarthy, the same man, Dr. Miles, shows up just like he does at the ending of this film. And he's screaming, they're here, they're already here, just like he does in the beginning and end of this one. And the same actor, same scene, only it's in color 25 years later. And it just makes that movie. Kevin McCarthy absolutely makes the sequel, or the remake. And it's the last thing that happens in a sequence of events before you just jump off the cliff in the... Well, in the very next scene, it's crazy how McCarthy's death in the remake nails the remake itself. If you took that out of the film, it wouldn't work. And here's the big speech, the pitch, so to speak, on pod life, conform or die, so to speak. And those are your choices. There's a lot of ideology jammed into the speech. Pods imitate all life on earth. They tell Miles everyone will be the same. And he gives a sarcastic answer because that's what an individual thought does. It invents sarcasm as a response to a dire situation. There's no need for love, no emotion, no feeling, no ambition, no faith, only the instinct to survive. And it reminds me of that scene in Forrest Gump when Dick Cavett asked Forrest about China. What was that like? And Forrest says, well, they have no religion and all of that. And it's very eerily similar. Now, back to the Belichicks for a minute while Miles and... Donna Winter try to get out of here. The only obvious, or I guess I should say overt attack on communism or even the mention of communism in any of the Invasion films is the 2004 remake called The Invasion with Nicole Kidman and Daniel Craig. And in this one, the Belichicks are actually Czech diplomats, which makes it an astounding amount of sense given their Czech name, their, their Czech nationality. And a Russian diplomat is over for dinner when the two exchanged this debate over the treatment of the Czechs under the Soviet Union. And I tell you folks, you look at what happened to the Czechs, Prague Spring, 1968, it's the 50th anniversary this month, 
or the Hungarians, or the Romanians, the Poles, the East Germans, or even the Russians themselves, you look that in the eye, and you tell me that communism isn't inherently evil, and I will laugh at your face, and then doubt everything that you say. After that, you can tell me the sky is blue, and I'll look at it myself to check. The history of communism is the only thing that makes me look at a B-movie picture like this and say, eh, that makes sense. And that is a fucked up thing to say. I don't think it was inherent. I don't think it was planned. I think there are a thousand coincidences that lined up to make this film look like what it is. A statement on communism, on pod people, and the paranoia of looking around at your neighbors, good people like the Belichicks, and thinking perhaps they're pods. It's the same thing as saying, oh, well, perhaps they're communists. And that's just as outrageous. That's absurd. And yet we did that professionally in this country for seven decades. As an aside, make sure that when you get to the end, turn off the podcast and listen to the music, which was brilliantly conducted by Carmen Dragon. And almost every article about Invasion of the Body Snatchers, her score comes up. It's been called unrelenting and spine chilling, and I agree. I've cited also uh, Daniel Manwaring as the screenwriter for this. There are mentions of Manwaring suffering from the blacklist. I see it in books, I see it in articles, and yet when I go to IMDb, I see, as a screenwriter, five projects in 1946, two in 1947, one in 1948, two in 1949, two in 1950, three in 1951, two in 1952, three in 1953, four in 1954, three in 1955, two in 1956, four in 1958, none in 1959, but five in 1960 which is popularly held as when the blacklist ended when Dalton Trumbo received full credit for Spartacus. So, though there are these references, I fail to see when exactly he suffered from the blacklist, except maybe 1959, but ask any screenwriter if they have a lull. Manwaring looks pretty busy. Maybe he was singled out and harassed, but it doesn't look like he was blacklisted. However... There are some sources that claim that he fronted scripts for other blacklisted writers, and that I can believe. That did happen a lot. Trumbo, for example, before he was blacklisted, he fronted scripts uh, for other films, including, I think, Roman Holiday. So that's very believable. That did happen. Step into the light. Now, this gets very interesting here. Becky and Miles, they put their emotions on their back pocket, and they try to act like pods. He says, show no interest or excitement. And when they hit the street, it looks like they're going to pull it off. They act like zombies. Notice her dress here with the floral print. And I'm sure you noticed Becky's form-fitting shirt. Unfortunately, she notices a dog in the street about to be hit by a car. And when she screams, it blows their cover. Now the running resumes. All right. Time to do the Bechtel test. Ready? Are there two women in this film? Check. Do they talk to each other? Uh, yeah. Rarely, though. Check. About something other than a man? Well, let's see. Becky and Sally talk about Miles. Then Becky and Teddy talk about the pod on the table, who is going to become a male pod version of Jack, so I'm going to say no. So Invasion of the Body Snatchers fails the Bechtel test. And while we're on this topic, it's useful to mention that as a filmmaker, Siegel doesn't exactly have very positive things to say about women. He depicts them as other. He shows a lot of sexual betrayal. 
And if you look at films like The Killers, Two Mules for Sister Sarah, The Beguiled, you run across a theme that men who get into relationships are just dooming themselves to betrayal or something worse, usually. As they ascend the staircase into the mountains, they descend into darkness, which makes no sense, which will close out the film. They seek refuge in a cave, which is, after all, where a man came from, right? Base desire, all of that. Look at this shot where they put the camera on a dolly and pulled it up the rails. Interesting side note. In 1951, Walter Wenger shot and did not kill MCA agent Jenning Lang, whom he believed to be having an affair with his wife, actress Joan Bennett, wounding that man in the groin, charged Wanger with assault with a deadly weapon, and he was facing a possible 14-year jail term. Now, Wanger pled temporary insanity, and he served four months in prison, but the experience affected him profoundly, as you would think that it would, and it later helped him work towards a comeback with the critically and commercially successful prison reform drama called Riot in Cell Block 11, which I have not seen. Now, Don Siegel directed that film in 1954 and The Big Steel in 1949, so Wanger's career was not in the ascendant, so to speak, and he was working with familiars that would help him rehabilitate his image. Siegel was also using familiar people that he had used before. Richard Kiley turned down McCarthy's role, right? Others were considered Joseph Cotton from Citizen Kane, Darren McGavin from Imitation of Life, Charlton Heston, Robert Ryan, Gig Young. And the same goes for the role of Becky Driscoll. They thought of Donna Reed, Kim Hunter, and Bancroft, whom you may know as Mel Brooks' wife and Barbara Hale, among others. Do you think all those people climbing the hill look like a bunch of ants and they're heading towards a cave? Interesting. Wenger was not satisfied with the initial cut of this, so he's the one who came up with McCarthy doing a voiceover. He also wanted Orson Welles to appear at the beginning, but that was too expensive, which is why I did the beginning as Orson Welles. Then he thought of having Edward R. Murrow do it so a recognizable reporter would give the story a documentary feel. And this is done today with Wolf Blitzer and others in disaster movies or even the last Mission Impossible, which was awesome. Go check it out. They also eliminated the humor, which followed an allied artist policy of not mixing comedy and horror. It's a very strange idea. But the framing narrative, the bookends... They were all shot in one day, and Siegel admitted that they helped. It was one of those situations where if he didn't do it, they would have hired somebody else to do it. So it was going to get done anyway. Now, the production code sent a lot of notes to Wenger about changes in body snatchers. He mostly ignored them, and there seems to be no obvious blowback. To which I say, good, and fuck censorship. Other titles were discussed for the film, including They Come from Another World, Sleep No More, and Better Off Dead, Evil in the Night, and The World in Danger. And in the middle of this were tons of films in the 50s that, you know, that's where people were trying to fend off failure in the face of overwhelming destructive forces. 
and you could divide them by genres, horror films, sci-fi, film noir, whatever. The search for Bridie Murphy, I've lived before, Back from the Dead, The Undead, Vertigo, Donovan's Brain, High Noon, The Phoenix City Story, No Place to Hide, right? Them, Tarantula, The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms or whatever it is. Earth versus the Flying Saucers, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, On the Beach, and the original, The Thing. Watch Siegel's brilliant use of camera work here. He did a great pullback when they got under the floorboards just in time. Then there's this pan up from the water, which you'll see in a million other films. But it does show that he cares about the subjects. This is 1956, remember? So what happens after 1956? Huac is still around, but McCarthy is gone. He was pantsed by Joseph Welch in the Army McCarthy hearings in June 1954. McCarthy was censured shortly after that. And from 1955 on, he was persona non grata in the Senate. He died a worthless, diseased alcoholic and a drug addict in 1957, the year after Body Snatchers was released. So the whole McCarthy paranoia was in the decline by the time that Body Snatchers came out, but that doesn't make it any less relevant. Now this cave is in Bronson Canyon, California. It's in the Hollywood Hills. That's where the staircase was that they climbed up frantically. And like I said before, the cinematographer strapped a camera to a furniture dolly and literally dragged it up the rail while McCarthy and Winter were in motion. Brilliant work. The whole film has very good images like that even this slow one out of the cave and this image is day shot for night Walter Wanger was not as engaged in the film's post-production as he should have been because he was engulfed with a lot of, lot of other ideas most of which never came to light because he was on these other projects and he wasn't involved in the marketing he abandoned his three-picture deal with Allied Artists and went to RKO for double the salary. If you know anything about RKO's timeline, then you know this was a bad idea because RKO's boss was Howard Hughes. And he was a notoriously bad businessman. RKO went bankrupt in 1957. Its assets were so cheaply sold that Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz bought RKO and the lot making it Desilu Studios. Desilu was sold to Paramount after the second season of Star Trek, and to this day, the western third of Paramount lot is recognized in the studio tour as the old RKO lot, including the soundstage where RKO 81, Citizen Kane, was filmed. Don Siegel went on to have a great career, including working with one of the most successful actors of all time, Clint Eastwood, who also went on to be one of the greatest commercial directors of all time. Miles finds the new source of the pods. They're being harvested almost like a corporation would harvest anything. So that idea goes against the mindless conformism the pods represent, but whatever. The pods use nature against nature by depriving man of his independence, which is his true nature. But man has an innate desire for security and tranquility, which the pods also represent. 
Remember what Belichick said, they would be born into an untroubled world. What man or woman would not want that? So there's a strong case for being a pod, and yet the independent human nature that burns inside Miles is what leads him to torch the place. Barry Grant has noticed that Becky looks like the white rock girl when she leans over the water in the cave. The white rock girl was the art on the logo of a popular mineral water which people in the 50s would have recognized. The logo was based on Psyche, the girl in Greek mythology who was supposed to be a mortal woman of great beauty. Well, that's fitting because that's what Miles certainly thinks she is. But it's even more fitting because she changes right in front of him, right here. And she horrifies him as she transforms her rather transfers to this other thing coming out of a pod and you can see the horror on his face and the kiss did not work out it's just dreadful and he says he never knew the meaning of fear until he kissed Becky and this leads to the question of what exactly is happening does anyone know there's a few things out of joint Miles says the original is probably destroyed or disintegrates and if that's the case then how is the pod Becky shows up fully clothed? Did the pod take her clothes? There's ways around this, but you know, in the 78 version, she just shows up nude, and that makes sense, of course. And we know it's the 50s, but something could have been done. And they chose not to, and that's kind of lazy. It's the only B-movie moment in this whole B-picture. And we're almost to the ending. That was fast. The bookend. Miles finds the trucks and look at the sides of the trucks and you'll see where they're going. One of them is San Francisco, which is convenient considering the remake in 1978 is in San Francisco. And another truck is going to Milltown, which is the brand name of one of the first mass market tranquilizers in the United States. And that's when you start to realize the scale of what they're doing and it becomes really frightening, really subversive. And if you live in this post 9-11 world like we do, if you're listening to this 50 years from now, you have to put our recent experience into context. My government failed miserably when it came to the response to Hurricane Katrina. It's a year after Puerto Rico got hit by a hurricane and most of that island still doesn't have fucking power. So my belief, and I would say most people's belief, that if something like this happened, and the government led the effort to stop it. I just don't think they could do it. I have no faith in my government to prevent something like this. There would have been a better chance in 1956. Maybe. In this ending, it's kind of like the end of Soylent Green when Thorne starts screaming, It's people! It's people! And that's where Siegel wanted the film to end. McCarthy screaming, you're next, and it's all us, our wives, our children, everyone, but the studio wanted a happier ending, so the bookends were added. You saw Miles escape, and you saw that G-Men were on the way, so it doesn't end on a completely down note, but the battle still goes on because we're still fighting communists today. Manwaring, the screenwriter, told Siegel that if he didn't shoot the ending, the studio would just fire him and shoot it anyway. The studio wanted it to end on a note that had closure, and we understand that coming from a studio that wants everyone to feel good and to feel safe, to conform. 
but the ending is so unsettling with Miles screaming his head off. It's so off-putting that it seems like we're not too sure that it's going to be enough. No one's sure of anything anymore. So Siegel may have had the last laugh on that. Don't you think? The novel had a different ending. The aliens gave up their plot to take over the Earth and went back to wherever they came from. But not here. Here the threat and the fear goes on. And who can stop the pod people? The same people who are charged with stopping communism. I give you the FBI. And if you know anything about the history of the FBI in the 1950s, then I think you'll agree that the idea of the Federal Bureau of Investigations putting an end to the invasion of the body snatchers is just as absurd as the invasion itself. Thanks for hanging out with me while we watched The Invasion of the Body Snatchers. 1956. I hope you found this interesting whether you watched the commentary on in your home or just listened in your car. The Super 70 Podcast is brought to you by Dylan Davis. That's me. You can find me, my podcast, my books, and my blog at www.thatdylandavis.com. The Super 70 Podcast is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. All music on this podcast was written and recorded by Rosalind McPhail, Joshua Cunningham, and Peter John Ross. You can reach them all on SoundCloud.com. If you're offended by the interpretation of this film, please let me know by sending me an email at thatdylandavis at gmail.com. If you like the podcast, please express this on iTunes. Google Play, or SoundCloud by leaving a rating and a review. You can also find me on Twitter at that Dylan Davis and find my books on Amazon.com. This is Dylan Davis, and next time we'll meet at the Taft Hotel. <laughs>